This podcast is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on Sirius XM. Welcome to our Behind the Markets podcast. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz. Alongside Warren Friends Professor Jeremy Siegel, we tackle the latest market trends every week on Business Radio, powered by the Warren School, Sirius XM, Channel 132. Our guest consists of experts like the world's leading authority on long-term economic growth, Bob Gordon. We will continue to see jobs created rather than destroyed. Former chair of the Federal Reserve, Janet Yellen. I mean, I don't think either of us ever expected that we would live through a financial crisis. Or even the head of the Digital India Foundation, Arvind Gupta. The reason that people are talking about India is massive digitization and financial inclusion that we have done over the last couple of years. Enjoy this week's show. Welcome back to Behind the Markets here on Business Radio, powered by the Warren School. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz, Global Head of Research at Wisdom Tree. My co-host is Warren Finance Professor Jeremy Siegel, author of Stocks for the Long Run and the Future for Investors. I also have a co-host in the studio, Gorev Sinha. He's an Associate Director of Modern Alpha and Asset Allocation at Wisdom Tree. Please note, Gorev and I are registered representatives of Foresight Fund Services. Professor Siegel is a Senior Advisor to Wisdom Tree. Our discussion is not tied to the offer of sale investment products, and the views our guests are their own and not those of Wisdom Tree affiliates. We're going to have an amazing show today. We have two emerging market-focused guests. First, uh, on the top half of the show, we're talking with Andy Rothman of Matthews Asia. Just came back from a trip to China. Very much, very topical in the news. Uh, so much of the, the the world economy is centered around what's going on between the U.S. and China, but also broader global economies tied to the emerging markets' long run growth. We're going to be able to check in with Andy on, on his views in the second half. Rushir Sharma of Morgan Stanley done a lot of writing on emerging markets, the growth of nations generally. It's going to be a really interesting show on both halves here, Professor. Uh, but we have Professor Siegel just to start off the show. So uh, just to give us some ch- check in. How are you thinking about just the latest developments and, and any updates? Yeah, well, uh, so we, we got a very good retail sales report today, not so much for the month of May, but an upward revision to April, which um, has now raised uh, second quarter GDP estimates from the mid to low ones to the high ones. And that's still not great, but a little bit, a uh, uh, little bit stronger. It's still a, might might be the weakest quarter under the uh, Trump presidency, but not not a falling apart. So, you know, we we've seen a little weakness. Jobless claims have been a little soft. Manufacturing PMIs have been a little bit soft, but nothing that indicates the economy is falling off the table. All eyes are to the Fed, though. Next week, expectation is the Fed will tilt to the dovish side and uh, indicate that a rate cut will be coming given the data probably on the july 31st meeting i think that's what the market wants i think if there is no tilt that will be a big disappointment for the market so if there is a tilt now the market would actually prefer a 25 basis point cut right away but i don't think that's gonna that's gonna happen you would have heard more uh, hints from the uh, fed presidents but uh i think you'll get that tilt uh dovish very dovish language um, uh, CPI came in on, on the weakest side, et cetera. So that also concerns some. And, um, and then also, you know, uh, I mean, there's still the feeling that Trump settled the issue with Mexico, whether it was show or not. Uh, he recognized that was not going to be good going forward. People are hoping that that is going to be the outcome with China. Uh, again, we've talked about many times, you cannot let this get into a trade war. So the, the economy is slowing down, so you don't want any risk 
that a big disruption uh, with with a big hike in tariffs can throw us into a recession. So you're, uh, if, uh, as you think about that reaction next week, your main your main call. We're getting at the dovish tilt, um, and, and yeah. the, the market do, is. Do they does it sell off? If, I think if, you know we, we we bounced back up. We were within two percent of the all time high of the S and P, which is pretty amazing given the developments. I don't see that strong force upward now. If we get that dovish tilt, I, I think that could cause a surge. And if we get some statement from Trump or others that there's a trade deal, trade deal and dovish tilt could bring us another 5%. I don't know if a dovish tilt alone can't do it, but if we get some very close to a trade deal, favorable news on that, we got another 5 6%, I think, on this market. And I think that's what they're waiting for. Very good. Um, any other thoughts about what's going on within the markets or any other commentary about what, what you uh, what you see? I am, as everyone, just stand amazed at the 10-year going to 209, uh, despite the fact that the data has gotten a little stronger, um, uh, a little less recessionary risk than there was, and yet the buying of the uh, Treasuries it just continues. Uh, 209 um, with the Fed funds at 235, that's just an inversion that uh, I think the Fed needs to work to correct. And uh, I do know there's two or three people on the Fed that are, would be very, very interested in the cut now. may go along with just a tilt, but uh, they're going to be strong advocates. Yeah, there's uh, there's been some charts going around talking about the three five year being inversion and Cam Harvey from Duke, who we've talked with before, saying that's one of his. You know, if it if it stays inverted for more than a quarter, that's like your recession indicator. But then you got things like the two ten and all these different curves. The two tens not inverted, so like a twenty basis point plus spread there. But this three five, a lot yeah. of interesting dynamics at the yield curve. Yeah, yeah and I, I would say given what we have, a growth recession, that's the you know, growth between zero and one percent, not a recession, but that is threatened, you know, uh with with the type of inversion that we've had. But again, if the Fed lowers and the trade deal comes near, I think we can avoid it. Well very good. Professor, thanks for joining us for your commentary. Looking back to next week after the Fed meeting. Yes. Absolutely. All right. We're going to turn to our, our first guest, Andy Rothman, an investment strategist for Matthews Asia. He's been a, a return guest to our show. He writes a blog called Synology that is closely followed. And, and given that he just came back from China, we're looking forward to getting his use. Andy, welcome back to our program. Good to be here. Thanks. So maybe you could start us off on your, you know, you think about China. You just came from this trip, sort of your long-term view and, and a little bit on your, your short-term, you know, what's the key takeaways from, from your latest trip? Well, the long-term view is that China is going to continue to drive global growth. And for investors, uh, that says two important things. First, every investor needs to pay a little bit more attention to what's going on in China because it has such a big impact on everything we do. Even if you don't invest directly in Chinese stocks, GM, for example, is selling more cars in China than they are in the United States. Companies like Apple, Tesla, Adobe, NVIDIA are getting about 15% of their global revenue from there. And uh, it has a big impact on what the Fed's going to be thinking as well, because every year on average for the last decade, and this is going to continue, I think, China has accounted for one-third of global economic growth. That's a larger share of growth than coming from the U.S., Europe, and Japan combined. And so the second thing that's important is, do you or your clients want to have some exposure to that global growth driver. And 
when for sure the long term trend is is this consumption story in in China, and then you have the short term like w- what's going on in the trade dynamics. So as as you traveled and talked to people, what what was your sense on the ground of the the current dynamics? Yeah, and it's important to understand that China is no longer an export led economy, and it's especially important to understand that given the trade tensions right now. So the the tariffs are having a modest real impact on the Chinese economy because the domestic demand part of the economy is the largest part in the last year. Three quarters of growth came from consumption, and that's being driven by phenomenal income growth in China. And that's not going to change. But what is changing as a result of the tensions with the United States is sentiment. And we, we've seen good examples of that uh, in the fourth quarter of last year when things were not rocky between Trump and Xi. Uh, investment in China was a little bit soft. Uh, consumer sentiment was a little bit weak. But in the fourth, first quarter, when the negotiations took off and there was a very modest credit stimulus, back to the races again. The uh, A-share market was up about 25% in the first quarter. Uh, now it's a little bit weaker again uh, because of the tension. So uh, you, we're, we're all waiting for the results of the meeting between Trump and Xi, which is supposed to take place on the 28th or 29th of this month when they're both in Osaka for the G20. And, do you, you know, there's all sorts of gamesmanship between this election and these politics, and it's hard to know how all these things play out. But there's sort of the, the, the cynical view is, you know, Trump tries to create more havoc, um, sort of like this little Mexico havoc created before he gets something done. And then all of a sudden in, in spring, right before the election, he sort of solves the problem. <laughs> um, do you have a, a view on timelines and how they, they, they play all this out? Yes, I do. I think that President Trump decided back in November of last year that a deal with China was better for his re-election prospects than no deal. And I think he came to this conclusion after watching the results of the congressional races earlier in November, where the Republicans lost the House, in part, I think, because uh, some Republican voters just stayed home because they were a little bit upset with the impact of the tariffs. Uh, So after that decision, Trump and Xi met for dinner in Buenos Aires at the last G20, and that sparked off a frantic series of 11 rounds of negotiations where it looks like they made a tremendous amount of progress until they didn't, and things kind of went off the rails in early, early May. But looking at what President Trump's been tweeting and saying since then, I think he still believes that a deal with China is best for his reelection prospects. So I'm a I think the odds are that there'll be a good meeting between Trump and Xi uh, later this month, and that will restart the negotiations. And uh, my base case is we'll see an agreement sometime in the near future. Andy, let's speak a little bit about more, you know, uh, continuing on the cynical um, view. Let's say if things don't go right, right? One of the concerns that I keep hearing from every um, investor that I speak with is that unlike U.S., Chinese economy is a very, you know, at least the political setup in China is very tightly held political setup. So what that means is that all of these U.S. companies that are getting a good portion of their revenues coming from China, unlike U.S., Chinese government can nudge people in a much stronger way to change their spending pattern and get away to, you know, more local products and sort of whip, uh, they can whip up the nationalist sentiments in the people as well. So it's good that a lot of revenues for U.S. companies are coming from China, but do you think that there is a downside if things don't go in the right direction and people may start boycotting U.S. Uh, you know products and getting more into local products, and that might be actually helpful for the local companies in the long run too? Well, 
It, that's certainly possible. Right now, we really haven't seen that. And the Chinese government has to walk a careful line here because uh, let's look at GM, for example, which sells almost 4 million cars a year in China, about 20% of their global revenue, more cars, as I said earlier, than they sell in the United States. But those cars are made in China by Chinese workers. They're serviced and sold by Chinese dealers. And so I think the Chinese government isn't likely to want to completely disrupt that business because the impact on China will be just as significant as the impact on General Motors. Uh, On the other side, what we're seeing, I think, is kind of a Sputnik moment for China. Uh, You remember when the Soviets put that satellite up, that generated a huge amount of interest and momentum and investment in our science education, our R&D. And I think the Chinese companies and the Chinese government are saying, well, maybe we've gotten a little bit too comfortable and lazy relying, for example, on on American semiconductors. And we really need to double down on our efforts to develop our own because, you know, things could go poorly. But let me also raise another issue about government control that, that you mentioned there. And I think this is really important. You know, the the, the, the central bank in China is directly controlled by the Chinese government. It's kind of what President Trump seems to be indicating he'd like to be able to do with the Fed, but can't. And as a result, I think that if we go from the current tariff dispute to a full-blown trade war, which is not my base case, but if we do that, I think the pain's going to be greater here in the United States than in China, because both economies are basically domestic demand stories. And the Chinese government Chinese central bank have a lot more resources, tools, and the political will to implement both monetary and fiscal policy stimulus to mitigate the impact of that. And they'll be able to do that really quickly because the biggest problem right now in China is the sentiment impact rather than the real impact. Consumers are a little bit concerned, although retail sales growth last month was up uh, over 6% year over year. Uh, and companies, small companies, which drive the growth, are not investing right now because they're worried about this. But what we saw in the first quarter is if there's a stimulus, that confidence can come back pretty quickly. Now, the um, there's also just recently in terms of the political upheaval, there's been lots of pictures that we've been getting from Hong Kong on some of the different extradition uh debates over there that's happening and so the protesters in the street happening and then there's some worries that that pressure from that dynamic is going to be right on Xi's mind and it's going to make him you know focus on that even more than you know sort of backing down on on the trade any any view on the developments in hong kong and how that's going to play does that uh, in your mind tied at all to this trade story mm. well i'm quite concerned about what's going on in hong kong uh because if we think about uh, the Hong Kong economy, its most important comparative advantage compared to Shanghai, which is also a, a, another financial center for both China and the region. Hong Kong's main comparative advantage is the rule of law and government transparency. And that appears to be weakening over time uh, since the handover in 1997. And the passage of this extradition ordinance would be another step in the wrong direction towards that. So I'm, I'm quite concerned about that from the perspective of what's going on in Hong Kong. But I think that Xi Jinping is capable of handling that issue and also handling Donald Trump at the same time. And I don't think that the Chinese side is looking at the negotiations with Trump as 
backing down or making concessions to him. Uh, my understanding from talking to people in Washington is that a lot of progress has been made on, on two important issues, for example, uh, protection of intellectual property rights, IPR, and access, better access to the markets there by foreign financial services companies. And I think that she is willing to do these things because in the end, they're beneficial to China's economic future. Let's look at IP intellectual property, for example. Uh, one of the reasons that the Chinese economy isn't more innovative, they don't have a stronger pharma or software industry, is they don't do a great job protecting intellectual property rights. And it's a lot better than it was 10, 15 years ago, but it's not good enough, both for foreign companies, but more importantly, for their own companies. So I think that she is approaching these negotiations as doing things that are in China's own long-term interest. Honestly, I think the timing of this extradition law that is, you know, President Xi is trying to implement is a little surprising to me because President Xi is already fighting a very tough battle against President Trump. And he knows that President Trump is not one of the easiest person to negotiate with. So it makes me wonder why would they open another front, another new battle at this time? You know, China always wants Hong Kong to be more closely tied and they don't like any, you know, short, sort of anti-China sentiments in Hong Kong. So eventually this would have happened. But right now, when he's heading into G20 and, you know, it's he's in President Xi's in the middle of all these tough negotiations with President Trump, it's surprising. And it part of me makes me feel that it goes back to what Andy was saying, that China has more tools uh, to, to play out in this trade battle. And, and that's why probably it gives him some sort of a confidence that, you know, I can open another front and not care necessarily about President Trump. Well, it's possible uh, that President Xi doesn't really see it as opening another front. Uh, I think the timing is more coincidental than anything else. Uh, the Hong Kong government says that the reason that they've brought forward the extradition ordinance now is connected to uh, one specific criminal case, uh, someone who is in prison in Hong Kong but is accused of murder in Taiwan and is going to be released in several months and they want the extradition uh, ordinance passed so that as soon as he's ready to be let out of jail in Hong Kong, he can be sent to Taiwan to face trial there. Uh, So I I, I doubt the two things were connected at the outset. And my understanding is that the U.S. has not been raising uh, non-trade issues, for example, what's going on in Hong Kong or what's happening in Xinjiang uh, in western China as part of these talks that they're really strictly focusing on trade. So if that continues, then I think that the Chinese government is going to be able to handle both at the same time. Uh, although, like I said, I'm, I'm more worried about the impact of what's going on with the extradition ordinance in terms of Hong Kong's future rather than on U.S.-China relations. No, I certainly hope that's the case. Um, and you're right that we haven't heard many, um, you know, statements coming out from U.S. leadership around Hong Kong, but there have been some rumblings. And I wonder um, somebody sooner or later is going to take this as another opportunity to embarrass President Xi and, you know, talk of it yeah, in well, a global forum. Yeah, well, certainly there are members of Congress who are raising concern about the extradition ordinance, which is legitimate. But I think we need to be careful when we talk about what the U.S. response should be. And one thing that I think could be dangerous would be to revoke the separate special status that the United States has given Hong Kong since the uh, 1997 turnover, basically saying that even though Hong Kong is now considered part of uh, China, 
we're going to treat them separately when it comes to economic and political and things like student visa issues. Uh, revoking that, which is what some members of Congress are talking about, in my view, would primarily hurt small businesses in Hong Kong students uh, and not have a positive impact on the Chinese government. So I'm not sure that that's going to be the best route to try and push things in the right direction in Hong Kong. Let me uh, just reintroduce our guest here. We're talking with Andy Rothman, a investment strategist at Matthews Asia. Uh, really timely conversation after he came back from uh, his latest trip to China. And, and Andy, you talked about a little bit earlier one of the trends on sort of the MSCI indexes, you know, the standard benchmark indexes are starting to add the A share market this year. How does Matthews look at that? And you know, when you think about you know the 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 the, the true benchmark weights. Um, you know, there's going to be a lot of China and a lot of the emerging markets benchmarks. And I'm just curious, when you think about the A-share opportunity, how you're viewing it today and, and just the longer term there as well? Well, the A-share market, which is, is the domestic uh, stock market in China, is, uh, is a great opportunity for investors because it tends to have a lot more uh, focus on consumer-oriented companies. And as I said earlier, that's the largest and fastest growing part of the Chinese economy. And uh, also, more opportunities for smaller entrepreneurial companies. And MSCI inclusion of A-shares in their indexes uh, is great because it's focusing a lot more investor attention on the Chinese market. But we at Matthews Asia are a active investor focused on stock selection. And so we're looking for our clients for the best opportunities in Chinese companies, regardless of where they're listed. And especially right now, given the uncertainty and tensions in the U.S.-China relationship, it's really important to, I think, take an active approach to the Chinese market, including the A-shares, and to look at what companies are going to be able to benefit from the continued strong domestic demand story, as well as not get caught up in any possible tensions between China and the United States, for example, if there are more restrictions on sharing IP or data between China and the United States. So I would really act, uh, argue for an active approach rather than an index-based approach to investing in China. Now, all these active decisions, can they, they can come from the stock selection, like you're talking about, where you can sort of pick the sectors and the stocks that are going to benefit from these sort of long-run consumer trends, maybe avoid some of your slower growth or, you know, less better the slower opportunities um when when but from the macro basis would you say that is it would you know is it a, a house view at matthews you should be overweight china underweight china how do you think about it from a macro level well we don't have a house view on things like that and we offer uh, investors a wide range of ways to get exposure to china which as i said earlier is a third of global growth um, so we have we have uh, three China funds. We also have regional funds that have a, a, a strong weighting towards China. Uh, we have value and growth approaches, fixed income approaches. So I think there is a style of investment that would allow a more cautious or a more aggressive investor to get some exposure to that part of the global growth story. Yeah. I hear you. Um, <laughs> so I try to pin you down to say, give me a view. Should I be overweight or underweight China? Um, well, you know, I'm a China guy. That's yeah. what I spend my time on. So personally, I'm overweight China. Okay. But it's not really about being overweight or underweight China. Uh, again, going back to something I said at the outset, I think the most important thing for your audience is even if you're not ready to own a Chinese stock right now, is just spend a little bit more time understanding China. Because 
you know, when you read in the newspaper something about the U.S., you already have a framework in your head for understanding whether that news is really spot on or a little bit biased in one direction or another. And you should be feeling the same level of comfort about analyzing the news out of China because, you know, when we're waiting for the Fed to make a decision, what's going on in China is weighing on them when you're deciding whether or not to own uh, a U.S. company that's getting 15% of their global revenue from China. You want to understand what's going on in the China story. For sure. No, that's, that's very helpful. Any it, it, On the rest of uh, knowing that you are biased towards the China sort of research side and, and, and that focus, if you looked outside of your purview and other areas at Matthews that, that you, you tend to be sort of optimistic on, things that you guys are focused on, are there any, you know, outside that China view where, where you're, you're excited on the global growth profiles? Sure. So we invest across the region uh, from down south around Sri Lanka and Bangladesh all the way up through uh, Korea. And in each of these countries, we're really focused on the domestic demand story because the Asian consumer is is a great story right now. And there are some China elements to it. You do We are able to find some smaller companies in each of those countries that are taking advantage of the Chinese domestic consumer story. Uh, so I think that if we think about income growth and the rise of the middle class across Asia, it's a tremendous domestic demand story. Mm. And uh, and when any other when you think about the risks beyond the the tr- the natural trade headlines that we're hearing, is there any other risks to those views? The outlook on what's the the the, the pressure that they're they're under from the, just the overall global economy slowdown that we've seen recently. Sure. Uh, well, so let's focus on China because that's really um, yeah. my expertise. Uh, first, when we're thinking about investing in China, we have to recognize that uh, on average every year for the last 10 years and for the next 10 years, every economic data point is growing a little bit more slowly on a year-on-year basis. And that's that's good because it was impossible to maintain double-digit growth beyond the couple of decades that we saw. But it's also growing more slowly off of a very big base. And so the incremental expansion is still enormous, and that creates uh, even better opportunities for companies and investors today than before. But we have to understand that growth rates are slowing. I think the other important thing to keep in mind is that while this is the world's best consumer story, the stock picking uh, at the micro level is really important. And again, why we're emphasizing an active approach, because we're on the ground in China and the rest of the region every day, uh, kicking the tires, doing a tremendous amount of due diligence on each company before we invest our clients' money. And I think that's really important is to know the companies uh, and to understand the management, their competitors, and valuations as well. Do you have a view on the banks versus, you know, like there's this narrative that the banks have all this bad loans, and it's one of the topics we've we probably hit on you before in the sense that that sort of perennial concern is that a lot of lending, a lot of bad loans, you know, and, and that they're all going to go bad over time. Any any updated views on that? Sure. Well, there there is a significant debt problem in China, but it's not a problem that I think has a high risk of causing a systemic crisis because the debt buildup in China was the result of the Chinese government directing Chinese-controlled banks, which is all of them, to lend money to state-controlled companies to build state-directed public infrastructure 10 years ago in response to the impact of the global financial crisis. So what's really important is that all of this debt is within the state system. Uh, 
There's no equivalent of a Bear Stearns or a Lehman Brothers. And while the debt is there and it's significant, and it is one of the reasons why China is growing a little bit more slowly every year, since the state is on both sides, the state banks lending to state companies, uh, the risk of a systemic crisis is limited. And they're starting to work through that. There's been a significant de-risking of the financial system over the last year and a half. And so while the debt-to-GDP level it has not yet come down, it's not climbing, and they're starting to work through some of the NPLs. So I think that we don't really need to worry about a systemic risk. Then the issue is uh, at which which bank do you want to own? And we're focused more on, on the larger banks, which are clearly state-controlled. And some of these banks are paying pretty good dividends, 5 6%. Yeah, you know, they, some of the lowest priced stocks around the world are Chinese banks in in that area. And the question is, uh, how do we how do we people look at the growth profiles and, and sort of the extra risk levels? But it's interesting to, interesting to hear your views there. Uh, any final concluding thoughts? If we if we uh, came down sort of twelve months from now, we're gonna have a China trade deal, and China's gonna be be one of the places around the world that people want to be in. Yeah, and and maybe let's take a step back away from the investment-specific part of this, and I would just encourage people to think about what kind of relationship should the United States have with China over the next 40 years. This is now the 40-year anniversary of the normalization of relations. And my view is that the last 40 years of engagement between the United States and China have been really beneficial both to Chinese people who have far more economic and personal freedom than they've ever ever had before, a much higher standard of living. And it's also been good for most Americans. It's kept our consumer prices low. It's been good for a lot of companies that are exporting into China and selling in that market. And sure, there are problems. There's a lot of things that need to work better. But are we best served with a policy of more engagement using the leverage we have to keep pushing the Chinese government to behave better? Or are we going to be better served by a policy of containment and trying to stop China from getting richer? And is that going to drive the Chinese government to behave in a way that's more appropriate? Very good. It's always a pleasure to hear your views, Andy. Thank you so much for joining us on the program today. Thanks for having me back. Appreciate it. Andy Rothman, a investment strategist at Matthews Asia. Uh, really timely conversation after he came back from uh, his latest trip to China. Thanks for listening to the Behind the Markets podcast. If you want to learn more about WisdomTree, visit wisdomtree.com. You can also follow me on Twitter at Jeremy D. Schwartz. I'd like to thank Patty Hall for producing our live program on SiriusXM channel 132 and our podcast producer, Daniel Bruno. Join us next week for another edition of the show. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu.